Welcome to Practicing Courage, a space where we're dedicated to exploring what it means to live well and engaging in practices that support finding the courage to do so. A common and often celebrated narrative, particularly in the U.S., centers around the idea of the lone hero, something we've explored previously on Practicing Courage. It's the romanticized myth of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps and doing it all on their own. One of my criticisms of this story is that it can put a lot of pressure on an individual to be courageous, which from my perspective is pressure that may be unnecessary. As I think community can be a powerful catalyst for courage and ultimately for realizing our potential. Along these lines, for years on the Courageous Life podcast, I've been exploring the question with a wide variety of guests. How can we create conditions for other people to be courageous? As you can imagine, there's a wide variety of answers to this question. A few that are notable include letting someone know we have their back, providing training, resources, tools, insights, etc. that may help them pursue what they really care about, creating psychological and other forms of safety that foster healthy risk-taking. Again, these are just a few examples, which are by no means exhaustive. I will share that one of my favorite answers to this question came from past podcast guest, best-selling author, and teacher, Parker Palmer. Before sharing his response, I think it's important to offer just a little bit of context. During our first conversation, Parker and I were talking about what it means to find the courage to embrace our whole selves. We also explored the related topic of finding courage to pursue our true vocation or calling in life. Here's just a small snippet of what he had to say in response to this question. If you'd like to hear the rest, I'd highly encourage you to check out the full conversation with him, which is titled The Courageous Journey Toward Wholeness. Imagine 25 people sitting in a circle with a facilitator or maybe a pair of facilitators at the, at the head of that circle, holding the space around certain ground rules. This is an easy thing for me to imagine because I've been doing that for over a quarter century, and I did one just um, three weeks ago for 25 folk from around the country. So the ground rule in holding this circle, one of the main ground rules is there will be no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. And I'll always remember the very first time I did that with a group back in the 90s, the mid-90s, with a group of public school teachers with whom we ended up working for two years through eight retreats, 25 public school teachers. And I said, okay, we're starting off on a two-year journey and there will be no fixing, no saving, no advising, no correcting each other. And I'm here to enforce that rule. And a teacher on the other side of the circle almost screamed, well, what in heaven's name are we going to do? <laughs> You've just taken away the only things we know how to do and that we like to do. <laughs> and I, I, and I, I, we all laughed. It was a laugh of self-recognition because 
when you think about it, those are among our favorite hobbies. You come to me with a problem. I love to try to fix you or save you or advise you or correct you. And when, the, when all of that is taken away from me, what's left? Two things that help the soul's imperatives show up. And when the soul's imperatives don't show up, there can be no courage, right? Courage comes out of getting in touch, deeply in touch with your soul's imperatives, and then realizing I can't not follow them. That's the sequence. There are only two things I can do if I follow that touchstone faithfully. One is I can listen to you very deeply. I can learn to listen in a way, and, and here I'll borrow a phrase from a feminist theologian named Nell Morton. I can learn to listen in a way that hears you into deeper speech. The other thing I can do, and this is what we do in our circles of trust, is to learn to ask honest, open questions of those who speak. And that turns out to be a very high art because many of us are skilled at asking questions that are little advices in disguise. So in a nutshell, a circle of trust is actually designed, it's a social space that is designed to do a very rare thing. And that is to allow a person to have a deepening conversation with herself or himself, which we hardly ever get a chance to do in this culture of ours. We mostly are listening in a, either in a preemptive or defensive way. You know, we're, we're listening almost in an adversarial way, like what weakness can I find in what this person is saying so that I can then attack it? Or what pathos can I find here that I can prove myself to be superior to by offering a fix or a solution or a save? So when all of that is taken away, what's left is something that is deeper in the human soul, which is the desire to companion each other on a, on a journey in a way that offers reassurance rather than this really strange notion, really perverse notion that I know what you ought to do. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I barely know what I ought to do from one day to the next. How in heaven's name do I ever know what you ought to do? <laughs> Listening back to Parker, I'm reminded about what a gift it can be when someone listens deeply without distractions, without judgment, and in a way that leads to feeling seen and heard. How often have you been listened to in this way? How often have you listened to others in this way? For me, the answer is not as much as I'd like to both of those questions. Listening deeply in itself is an act of generosity. And when you pair this type of deep listening with the ground rules that Parker talked about and ask open questions about what someone truly cares about, how they want to live, what's on their heart and their mind. It's a powerful recipe for creating the conditions for courage. And it's a really nice lead-in to today's practice. As you move into the rest of your day and your week, I would invite you to start small with the ideas that we've been talking about. Perhaps choosing one conversation and trying the following. First, eliminate distractions. Put your phone away, turn off the TV, the computer, 
and make any additional adjustments that are supportive of you being able to be fully present. Second, set the intention to remain as present as possible. Third, if your attention wanders away during the conversation, when you notice it, simply come back to what the person is saying and once again recommit to the intention to be fully present. Fourth, if a challenge or problem comes up in the conversation, notice your knee-jerk reaction in that moment. Is there, for example, a desire to solve, to fix, to advise, or to save? This pause, an act of noticing, can give you just enough space to make a choice about how to respond rather than just reacting out of habit. Now, I also want to acknowledge that it's possible that the person you're with is actually looking for your advice. And if they've asked you directly, then the most skillful thing may be to offer some. At the same time, if they haven't indicated what they're looking for, you might try inviting curiosity with an open question. Perhaps something that sounds like, what would be most helpful for you here? I'm happy to just listen and sit with you. Or if you're looking for ideas or advice, I'm happy to share that as well. Again, this pause and question may be just a small step toward what Parker was talking about, but it's one that packs a powerful punch as it can generate more self-awareness as you notice in the moment what are your tendencies? This noticing can lead to choice versus reactivity in how you respond. And it also helps to uncover what a person is needing in the moment and ultimately creates an opportunity to honor whatever those needs are. And that can be a gift. Thank you for your practice today. I look forward to continuing together next Tuesday.